It's episode 130 of Offscript with Trish Glose, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, I, ha I have David Becker. Hi, David Becker. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Trish? I'm well. I feel like I'm talking with a celebrity, and I'll tell everybody why <laughs> in a second. You are the executive director and founder of Center for Election Innovation and Research. You are all about elections, uh, re reversing that decline in voter turnout. We're going to talk a lot about that and how you developed this nonprofit. This is your baby, correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah. About four years old. Yeah, super excited to talk to you. But I got to know you, and maybe the world got to know you a lot better, um, because you were a frequent flyer on CBS News during, during last year's election. Yeah, that's right. CBS reached out to me to be their election law expert. I've been doing election law and policy for um, over two decades now. And uh, CBS reached out to me in the fall and asked if I'd help them out during the election season, which went on a little bit longer than all of us thought it might. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I was very fortunate to be able to work with um, uh, the professionals over at CBS News. It was one of the best experiences uh, of this whole season that I had. That's amazing. And it got to the point where I would be walking by the TV because we're a CBS affiliate, so I leave it on CBS. I also believe that CBS has some of the best news programs out there. But I'd be walking by the TV and I would hear something from you and I would look at my husband. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said? That's brilliant. I love this guy. And so I started to do my research and then you started to pop on all the time providing such wonderful, unbiased insight. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I definitely strive for that. I mean, I, I, I've been working for a very long time with election officials of both parties. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the professionalism of many of the election officials in this season, I think we can all recognize, um, led to the triumph of democracy that we actually saw this past election season. I mean, it's one of the really uh, one of the one of the amazing things in this whole season is that we just pulled off somehow the most successful, transparent, secure election in American history with the highest turnout that we've ever seen by the largest margin that we've ever seen. And yet there are tens of millions of people that think the exact opposite because of disinformation about the election. And the heroes in this story are the election professionals, Republicans and Democrats throughout the states who just did their jobs. Mm -hmm. And then normally their jobs are a, kind of boring and people don't really pay attention to them that much. Uh, they, you never see a headline on the day after the election that everything went great and they rarely get pats on the back. But um, this season, not only did they do their jobs and in the middle of a global pandemic with record high turnout, they also, as reward for doing their jobs, received death threats. Some of them are still under protection yeah. uh, because yeah. of ongoing threats. There was a pipe bomb just found at a polling place in Iowa this week. I mean, just put that into perspective, just past Tuesday. Um, that's uh, that's what we're seeing and, and being able to share the work of election officials, the incredible triumph of democracy that we just saw in the last several months. Um, I was privileged to be able to do that. And I just also have to say um, this the CBS News team. I, I mean, this is something uh, I was very privileged to be able to do. And uh, um, for all your viewers, just the most professional, kind people I've ever worked with, um, really focused on the job and, and public service of providing the unbiased news. Yeah, those journalists, CBS, are, are my heroes for sure. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the election of 2020, but I want to get back to David a little bit. Where are you from originally? <laughs> That's That'll take the whole thing, time. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went to elementary school in Delaware. I went to high school in Colorado. I went to college and law school uh, in Northern California. Um, practiced law for a little bit of time in Southern California before I came to Washington to work for the Justice Department in the late 90s. Man. Um, and uh, I've been in the Washington area since uh, since the late 90s. Um, and uh, I've gotten to work all over the country in the elections context. I've worked from Alaska to Florida and Maine to Hawaii. All right. You've been all over the place. Why, why hop from Delaware to Colorado? Was that like a parent thing? Yeah, I was, I, I was a child. My parents moved. My dad got a new job in the Denver area. And Colorado's a wonderful place to live and grow up, as was Delaware. I was very, very lucky. I, I, but I, I do kind of, I, I probably consider myself more Californian than, than anything else. I, I, I really enjoyed, I went to Berkeley for undergrad and law school, and I really enjoyed my time there. And probably when my work in D.C. is done, I will find myself a nice little, nice little house, maybe in wine country and, and, uh, and 
end up back in California. Come on back to the West Coast. We're waiting. We're exactly. waiting for you. Berkeley is such a beautiful spot in this country. It, it, you know, for people who haven't been there, Berkeley, I, I mean, my heart is in Berkeley. I love Berkeley very much. And people normally think of it as this place, this kind of radical hippie place with that's that's politically very, very liberal and is not like the rest of the country. The, the main thing people need to know about Berkeley, it is it is set in the foothills of East of the East Bay. Right. And uh, if you as you probably know, it sounds like you've been there. If you go to someplace like the football stadium, or the clock tower, and you can look west right across the bay to the Golden Gate Bridge as the sun is setting. It's one of the most beautiful sights in the entire world. Uh, I recommend people go there before they form an impression in their mind of what Berkeley might uh, might be, because it's really an incredibly diverse place. There are a lot of different political views there, a lot of people from a different all over the country and all over the world. Um, great restaurants. I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful place. Great restaurants. I feel like when I walk through the neighborhoods of Berkeley, I feel like Snow White a little bit because there's butterflies and birds chirping and the rosemary is gorgeous. I mean, it just, it's such a crazy place and it's unlike any other spot in California. It's, it's just really, it's really unique. It's, um, you feel like you're in your own little world when you're in Berkeley and then you realize, you're, you know, you're only 20 minutes away from San Francisco or about 40 minutes away from wine country or, you know, three hours away from the mountains of Tahoe or two to three hours away from Yosemite. It's, it's just, it's fantastic. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm going to, I could wax on about, um, about <laughs> Berkeley and Northern California for quite some time, as you can tell. Okay. Well, we're waiting on you to come on back. Are you a wine drinker? Of course. Thank goodness. <laughs> How could you survive during COVID without drinking wine <laughs> totally. and, and other cocktails? And the election and all of the things, all of the things. What did you want to be growing up as a kid? Oh, boy. I mean, I, I actually kind of knew I wanted to be a lawyer early on. And I, I you know, honestly, one of the things that happened to me was um, uh, I, I always wanted to go to law school. My dad is a lawyer. He does a different kind of law. He does patent law. But I always knew I wanted to go to law school. And I... Um, Early on, was really um, moved by the stories of the civil rights movement, and particularly the voting rights struggle, and that was something that really shaped me as I was, I was as I was growing up and I was being educated. And in law school, I wrote a big paper on voting rights. But I did what most people do after they leave law school, and I got a job at a firm, and I was doing entertainment litigation in Los Angeles, um, which was perfectly fine. People think it's a lot more sexy than it actually is. It's actually um, uh, business litigation for sometimes insane clients, but. Um, uh, you know, what really happened was, um, you know, I was working late looking through boxes of documents as young lawyers often do at law firms. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And I don't know if I want to become a partner at a law firm and continue to do this kind of work. I could probably do it, but you know, I've got to give, I've got to give something to myself and try at least to do what would be my dream. And I figured I would apply for a job as a voting rights attorney with the United States Department of Justice. Um, and uh, I wouldn't get it. And then I could at least say I tried and I will have no regrets. And then I will just fully get involved in whatever work that I'm doing and, mm -hmm. and, and resolve myself to that. And California is a perfectly lovely place. So um, I applied and six months later, my car is packed with all of my worldly possessions and I've been in DC ever since. Yeah, you did get it. You did get that job. Um, what was it about voting rights specifically? I find that a lot of lawyers get into whatever field of attorney work because they're wanting to fight for the underdog or there's something that's unfair out there that w they want to try and fix. Was that the same for you? Yeah, I mean, that is. It, and voting rights, uh, and the Supreme Court has said this, democracy and voting is the right that all other rights are derivative of. If you don't have your right to make your voice heard at the ballot box, if you find people discriminating against you because of your race or for some other factor, you're never going to be able to express yourself in democracy at all. And that always spoke to me as you're, you know, as I was educated about um, uh, the period of Jim Crow, the period of Reconstruction, going backwards and then going forwards, the Voting Rights Act and afterwards. Um, that really struck me. And, and, and after I joined the Justice Department, I had the opportunity to um, go and observe an election in Selma, Alabama in September of 2000. It was the first time a really viable African-American candidate was running for mayor of that city, which is two thirds African-American. Um, the same mayor in Selma, Alabama in 2000 
was the mayor in 1965 when Bloody Sunday happened just outside of Selma on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He had still retained power. He was a white man. And uh, it was expected this election was going to be very close, and they sent me and another attorney down um, to monitor it. And uh, the polls closed at 6 o'clock, and by 6.25, the incumbent mayor had conceded, and they had elected their first African-American mayor in their history. Um, I'm just incredibly grateful I had that opportunity to see that and to see the people celebrating. And I just get a little emotional thinking about it to this day. If you haven't yeah. been to Selma, go to Selma, see the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You'll see the bridge goes right through into the center of town. And you can feel the spirits of John Lewis and others on that bridge and that day. And uh, we're coming up to the anniversary is this weekend of, uh, of the of Bloody Sunday. And um, it's 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 striking. And to, to think even when we're struggling now, when there are challenges with democracy, challenges um, about perceptions of true democracy in this country, we still have come a long way from that moment in time. And that's a very positive thing. What was it like in that moment in Selma, you know, 20, tw whatever, 25 minutes after the polls close? I, I can't really even describe it. I will tell you that as soon as the incumbent mayor conceded, um, African-Americans from all over town came to the main street of Selma and started celebrating. It was entirely peaceful. It was joyful. It was dancing. They were playing music from their car radios. They were cheering. And um, I only saw one more white face the rest of the the rest of the evening there. Um, and again, I imagine a city where two out of every three residents is African-American, but they had never seen someone who looked like them, never in their history who ran that city. That was what Jim Crow laws had done. Mm. That is what anti-democratic forces had done. Um, and the civil rights movement got to that point. And it wasn't until 2000, 35 years after Bloody Sunday, that we finally saw a mayor elected that truly represented the majority of the city of Selma. Right, that's a little mind blowing when you break it down like that, for sure. Yeah. Was that a pivotal moment for you? You like know, I, I, pivotal, pivotal I, I don't know if I'd say pivotal, but it was, um, you know, I think one of the most, one of the things that was really pivotal for me coming to work for the Justice Department, you know, as you can tell from where I grew up, I grew up in areas that were, um, uh, not particularly racially diverse often, um, uh, not necessarily a lot of overt racism either, which is nice. Um, and when I, when I was assigned at the Justice Department, I would get assigned to, to various places to go down and observe elections and to investigate possible violations. And I worked a lot in the Deep South, which is not someplace I've worked a lot in the past. And um, one of the things you learn very quickly as someone who's white, is that it's important to have a self-awareness and humility about going into these places and really listening and learning from people. And I learned that very quickly. Um, there were often other whites who would come to me and say things to me that they probably would not say to my colleagues who um, were African-American or Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And I would just nod and take notes down after they walked away because they would often make admissions that were very, very helpful to us in our investigations. But often, my, uh, often minority people very understandably wouldn't immediately trust me. And to understand that that, wasn't, that that was entirely understandable given the history. There was bad history with regard to law enforcement. And I was law enforcement. I was working for the federal government. I was a, a, a federal voting rights prosecutor. Um, I was white. Um, you know, those are things that you have to really work to earn the trust of people who have very good reason not to trust you on your face. And that, um, that was an incredible lesson. That was as pivotal as anything that I've learned. Um, that, uh, you know, people come from different perspectives and that you take them where they are and that you should learn from them and you should be humble and really listen. That is a hard skill to learn, especially, you know, it was very different than what I worked in when I worked in law firms in big cities. Uh, listening is one of, it, it's a talent, in my opinion, when you can actually listen to someone and not automatically think of the next question or the next thing that you're going to say, but really listening to them and taking in everything they have to say and um, digesting that instead of just spouting off with your next question or your next thought. I mean, l listening is, is a big deal. 
And as a lawyer, it's really important. I mean, when you take testimony from someone at a deposition or a trial, oftentimes you'll see lawyers who just have a list of questions that they're going to read. And regardless of what the answer is, they're going to go to the next question down. And oftentimes the answer that the witness gives you appropriately changes your approach. You might need to change and go to a different area. You might need to really dive into what they just said and see, see if you can learn more from that. Um, the best lawyers, especially litigators, learn that pretty early on and are willing to go off script based on just the art of listening. For sure. I pissed off a lot of people early on in, in my career because I would ask a question and they would look at me and go, I just answered that. Were you not listening to me? So I learned quickly. Okay, you gotta <laughs> listen before you ask that uh, next question. How long were you at the DOJ? I was there seven years, almost exactly seven years. Um, worked there from 98 to 2005. Uh, and it was, at times, it was the greatest job in the world. And then at times it wasn't? At times it was a little harder. I mean, there were political things that came into it. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I, I worked to be, I worked very hard to be balanced. And as I said, I've worked with a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. Um, and some of the best times I had were under Republican administrations. And I also had not so good times under Republican administrations. And under uh, the Clinton administration also had some very, very good times. Uh, that was at the beginning of my career. But, you know, I, I got to litigate a case that is one of the uh, most important Voting Rights Act cases uh, of the last 30 years. It went to the United States Supreme Court. Um, it led to a congressional renewal of the Voting Rights Act in 2006 that actually um, took the position that I had advocated for uh, with the Justice Department when the Supreme Court had overturned that on a five to four vote. Um, so they had corrected that problem. So there were some things that I was very proud to be able to have worked on. It was a case called Georgia versus Ashcroft, which was about the Georgia redistricting. I was going to ask you, and now we're seeing this is the state of Georgia, correct? The Georgia versus Af And so now we're seeing Georgia a little bit in the spotlight again. I mean, Georgia is, uh, what's happening in Georgia right now is very much a mirror image of what we saw back in the early 2000s, which is um, as much as we saw in much of the Deep South, Democrats had held control, really a, 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 a legacy from Reconstruction, where Democrats had still held control in states like Georgia, even into 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. But Republicans were gaining and gaining and we now think of the South as deep red, but 30, 40 years ago, we would be shocked to see how democratic it was, at least just as party label. The, the policies might be very, very different, but the, the party label was different. And so in 2000, what we saw is that Georgia Democrats were on kind of their last gasp of holding power at that time. And so they, were, they, they drew the, the districting lines in such a way that they could kind of retain power. And what, what that did, and people think the Voting Rights Act is just you know, it's not political. It's really not about the right of um, minorities to elect Democrats. It's the right of minorities to elect candidates that they choose. Sometimes they're Democrats, sometimes they're not. Sometimes there are two Democrats in the primary and they choose one and white voters prefer another. And those are things that are protected under the Voting Rights Act. And so what we saw in Georgia in the early 2000s was that the Georgia Democrats were uh, protecting white Democrats at the expense of black Democrats in many cases. Right. And um, we won that case in the lower court and lost it in the, in the Supreme Court. And then the Congress reestablished the standard that we, we made. And I think what we're seeing now is something similar, which is where Republicans are kind of holding on. Um, you, you talk to any Republican who really knows anything in Georgia, and they will tell you they saw this coming. The, the political dynamic in Georgia was naturally changing. It was getting closer and closer and closer, and really it was dead even. So the, the, the results that we saw in Georgia in this last election cycle um, not only weren't a surprise, we should have been surprised if we had seen anything other than this. Gotcha. And this is, uh, I want to get to ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center. That came before... Um, the Center for Election Innovation and Research, correct? Okay. Wow, and you've so, done your research, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am a journalist. Got a whole timeline of my life there. I mean, this is, uh, we should, um, you have to send that to me so I can remind myself about what I've done. <laughs> Put it up on your mirror every morning so you can be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but this is, Eric helped a bipartisan group of nearly two dozen states correct almost four million out-of-date voter records. That's insane Yeah, to the me. numbers numbers are higher than that actually really that's, that's kind of old information yeah so 
So Eric, the Electronic Registration Information Center is something I led the effort to create when I was working uh, at the Pew Charitable Trust. I led their elections mm -hmm. team there. And we work to, you know, one of the things if you talk to election professionals, not the people who are political, but the people who actually run elections, we talked to them about, oh, a dozen years ago. And I said, you know, if you could if you could fix one thing in elections, what would it be? And they all agreed it was voter registration because it's really hard to keep voter records up to date, mainly because people are moving. There's nothing nefarious about it. There's not fraud that's happening. We know that fraud is extremely rare in the United States, but people move a lot. Uh, about a third of all Americans move every four years, which is an election cycle between major elections. So trying to keep up with that information and make sure the voter records reflect that, that is not easy. That's a data problem, really. Mm -hmm. um, and we created this data center called ERIC. Um, it started with seven states, a bipartisan group of seven states in 2012. It's now grown to 30 states, actually. Um, states as blue as Oregon, Illinois, and Connecticut, and states as red as Alabama, Utah, South Carolina. Um, and uh, the states share data. They identify when people move between states, within their state, when they've died. Um, and they also identify people who are in their, for instance, their motor vehicles database, but who don't have a voter record. Mm -hmm. So Eric has been responsible. We're still getting complete data from 2020, but I think it's getting close to, um, it's over 10 million records that have been updated with correct address information, which is incredibly enfranchising and good for election integrity. And also probably over 10 million new registered voters that have been contacted by the states themselves and invited to register and registering the most convenient way possible, which is almost all in most of the states means online voter registration, which is really convenient and effective. So um, probably it's probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career. Um, it's had a huge impact on voting in the states. It's made it more convenient. It's it's given it greater integrity. People know the voter rolls are more accurate or they should know the voter rolls are more accurate in these states that have joined, Eric, and more states are about to join. And it's been it, it, one of the things that's best about it is it's been done really quietly. And that it's quiet because it's it's not an exciting, divisive story. It isn't just the blue states or just the red states that are doing this. I, I often say there's a Secretary of State Merrill in Connecticut and a Secretary of State Merrill in Alabama, and they agree on literally nothing, except they're both in error. That's so amazing. That is, that, I mean, that's really, it's, it's a really great accomplishment. And we're seeing now, I'm, I've, just today I've talked to uh, two states, one of which is very blue, one of which is very red, both of which are moving to join Eric sometime in the next year. Congratulations. That's that's pretty yeah, amazing. I, I, I know it's I, there were a lot of people involved with it. I I, I mean, I, I was very proud to lead the effort and I brought the people together that, that did it. But there were people on the tech side. There were people, election professionals. There were academics and researchers. There were so many people who did this that 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 led to this effort. And um, and one of the other amazing things about Eric that people should understand, it's not being you know, I don't run it. It's not being run out of my house. It is not you know, it is being run by the states that comprise it. Each state sits on the board of directors. They govern and manage ERIC. The, their, you know, all of the data that's, that's, that goes into ERIC is kept extremely secure. I could talk just about the security of ERIC if you ever wanted to, on domestic servers. I mean, these are things that we thought about when we were building it to make sure that this was something that was not only useful, but protected personal information um, because that's just, very, very important. Yeah, it is incredibly yeah. important. As a journalist in a very small TV market that I've covered dozens of elections, you said something that Eric was done pretty quietly. And this, it kind of just occurred to me, we don't typically really care about elections until it's election night or it's the, the weeks before an election. And then it becomes a big deal for voters and it becomes a big deal even for the media. That's changing. Well, this election season seems to say it's changing. I mean, it's frankly a great piece of evidence about that is that you're talking to me right now. Normally, I am very, very popular around September, October, November of an even numbered year. But outside of that, no one really wants to talk to me that much. I mean, they want to talk about other things. But um, it, it, it's becoming that we're, you know, the election season is, is dragging out. In some ways, that's good because this is when policy is being made. The legislatures are meeting right now, as we know, in all of the states. Right. And they're considering changes to election policy. And we should be talking about that right now and not wait until September or October of 2022 to do that. On the other hand, it also reflects the continuing 
lies and disinformation that are going on about the integrity of the 2020 election. And um, that, that, is, that is unfortunate. I mean, a lot of this stuff should not be political. The worst way to make election policy is to look at the last election and to look at the next election and decide what you can do to put your thumb on the scale to help your party or your candidates win. That's the worst way to make election policy and it almost always fails because you're often making assumptions that don't, won't apply in a year and a half or two years. Um, the best way to make an election policy is to think about your voters. What do your voters want? What do your voters need? Um, there are places where, you know, Oregon is a place where everyone votes by mail pretty much. Um, you need to have certain processes in place to make sure that that works well. In other places where most people prefer to vote in person, it's going to look a lot different. And to think through those things and think about the voter first, that's what's most important. And we're not really seeing that right now, which is unfortunate, which is one of the reasons, again, that, you know, you and I are talking and others are probably talking about this stuff as well. For sure. Yeah, in fact, we joke about it here in Oregon when you see these other states moving into mail-in ballots and we're like, we've been doing it for years. No biggie. It's yeah, easy. decades. Yeah. Um, I, I, but, and, but one of the reasons it works so well is also you've been doing, you know, it probably wasn't so easy in the mid-90s mid when, when you first started it and people were still had a learning curve. Um, you know, that's uh, what, what we're seeing is, you know, vote, and I think it's for the point you just raised. Voters have a lot of things going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. They're not doing what I'm doing. I think about elections every day. It's my job. It's what I do. It's uh, it makes me very unpopular at cocktail parties, whatever those are. <laughs> right right um, but but for most people, they're going to think about elections in the days, maybe if you're lucky, the weeks before a major election. And so they're going to have to ramp up with that steep learning curve on everything that's changed in a very short period of time. And then you you overlay COVID on top of that which led to a ton of changes in polling places, a ton of changes in the need for poll workers and get recruiting and training new poll workers. Now, a place like Oregon didn't see that so much because at least with regard to COVID, Oregon was pretty well prepared. Now, there might be a, a different change that puts Oregon in a different position and makes the learning curve much steeper in the future for voters. This is something election officials are constantly dealing with. It's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by their consummate professionalism and the way that almost all of them don't put any political considerations into how they do their job. No, exactly. Why did you create the Center for Election Innovation and Research? And I do want to point out, I mentioned this before we started recording, typically the background is all blue just because that's a KTVL thing. For some reason, we're blue and red today. We did it for you. I didn't want to change it. That's good. Yeah. Bipartisan. I love it. Right. Um, I, so uh, back in 2016, I was leading the Pew effort, but Pew had been doing this work for eight plus years or so. And um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, they decided they were moving on from the elections work and I've decided I wasn't quite done yet. So I, I, I actually don't consider myself much of an entrepreneur. I know people who are entrepreneurs and I, I, I admire and um, respect that a great deal. It's not something I really thought I had in myself. But I decided, uh, along with a colleague from Pew, to start um, start CEIR, um, the Center for Election Innovation and Research, to largely continue the work and the style of the work in which we've done, which is working closely with election officials, of trying to find consensus between the parties where possible. We're using data and research and technology to help solve problems where we can to kind of get past the normal partisan divisions that we've seen. You know, in, in, in many places, what we see is this artificial dynamic where one side will say all that matters is access. We got to get more people voting. And the other side will say all that matters is integrity. We got to stop all of the bad people from voting or the wrong people from voting. And the, and the truth is that access and integrity are symbiotic. That, um, you know, if we wanted the most accessible voting system in the world, we could say just, you know, text your vote someplace. It's incredibly accessible. It's not secure at all. Or you, if we wanted the most secure system in the world, we could say, go to this one particular location in a concrete bunker and give a blood sample and then mark your vote down. Um, that's great, but it's not accessible at all. So we need to find a balance between those two things and finding that balance really drove the work that I've been doing throughout my career, but especially lately at CEIR. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you listen now to the debates going on in the legislature, you'll hear um, one side talk only about integrity and about the threat of fraud, and the other side only talk about access and the threat of suppression. And what we really should be talking about is where can we boost integrity, 
but do it in a way that doesn't diminish access for all eligible voters. And those conversations don't happen that much, but we help try to start some of those conversations. Mm. I'm glad you're around, David Becker. Whew. Thank goodness. And I, I'm impressed with anyone who starts a business or with anyone who starts a nonprofit, uh, especially something around so, I don't wanna say it's so complex, maybe it's complex to me, but something about election and, and voter rights. I mean, that's a big deal, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of groups that work in this space, too. So, you know, I, I wasn't starting a business. I didn't need to find capital. I didn't need to, you know, a, a, right. achieve some kind of profit margin over a period of time. But I did need to find, um, as, a, as a 501c3 charity, I did need to find donors. I needed to, find, I needed to fundraise. I needed to um, get money to make sure that I could hire staff and have an office and everything else. And that takes some time. Was that but hard? we were able to do it. Asking for money? Um, it was, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, most of our, most of our funders are kind of institutional, uh, large foundations. Um, uh, we do get some individual donations as well, um, both large and small, but, um, you know, I think I, I do view it through this business lens, which is we are providing a service, a product, and that product happens to be something that I think a lot of people value, which is an effective functioning democracy. And it is incumbent upon us to show that our work is helping that. I, you know, one of the things that's really important to me, there are a lot of people who work in the advocacy space where they will get a, an op-ed printed in a newspaper or they'll um, uh, put some ads out on uh, or, or get some media attention. And that's nice, but only if it achieves, if it helps move you closer to your goal. I mean, ultimately, when I mentioned the quiet part, um, Oftentimes we trip over ourselves trying to take credit for things. Um, it's much more important to get something done and have credit be spread around amongst a lot of people. People, when something works um, and people can take ownership of it, the chance that that thing that works will continue are very, very high. And I learned that at DOJ. Sometimes I didn't sue places um, that were not quite in compliance with federal law because they wanted to be in compliance. They just needed some help and guidance to get there because mm. some of these issues are rather complicated. And so we would fashion some kind of remedy that they could own, that they did, that they that they could say, we did this on our own initiative. And those are still in place 20 years after I've had those conversations with those states or counties, um, whereas consent decrees expire at some point in time. And people are much more willing to perpetuate something good that they've done that they feel ownership on. Yeah, that's powerful. That, that's really powerful. Was it fun suing people sometimes? <laughs> it can be. Look, if people are doing the wrong thing and you're on the right side and yeah. you are you are fighting for the underdog, as you said before, that can be great. I mean, and it, and it is much better than, you know, litigation over accounting of a, a movie series, which right. are things that I used to do. I mean, you know, when I when when I get to stand up and I, I sued Democrats and Republicans, um, I you know, for me, it's not a political pursuit at all. Mm -hmm. um, being able to fight for the underdog and to uh, some of the best moments I had in my life, I haven't done it in a while, but litigation can be fun. Litigation is about one percent really fun and about ninety nine percent really hard roll up your sleeves, thankless work. Um, but that 1% fun is worth it. I mean, those moments when you get to stand before an appellate court and make your arguments and you can see them resonating with judges, um, those moments when you get a witness in a position where they, they've kind of tied themselves in knots and you know that's gonna help you in your case, mm -hmm. those moments when you're actually working with people and just interviewing the people that you're trying to help and learning about what they've been through and how what you're doing is changing their lives, that's something I hope everyone gets a chance, um, especially people who are just starting their careers right now, think about that. If you find yourself in a job where you get where your soul get fed, gets fed like that every day, you've won. Doesn't oh. matter how much money you make, doesn't matter what your title is, how much power you have, when you get that every day, you've won. That, uh, that gave me goosebumps a little bit. I read something yesterday, it was from a Navy SEAL, and he said, we have one life, do what you love, don't do just something to get by. And that's kind of, you know, searching for that passion. I mean, not everyone has, ha look, I'm very sensitive. I, I mean, a lot of this was luck. You know, you, 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 you apply for the right job at the right time. You know, there were moments in my career I was like, oh no, what am I gonna do next? And things worked out. 
And um, there, there, you know, some of it was hard work, but there were always luck elements. There are for everybody. Um, but if you get to that point, if you can find yourself a way to get yourself on that track and put yourself in the position where the right, you know, the right thing happens and you can you can grasp it, uh, uh, you will never you'll never be sorry. I mean, honestly, I think about this during COVID. COVID is hard for so many people. Yeah. It's isolating. I travel all the time for my work. I haven't been at an airport in a year. Um, very, very strange for me, but because every day I'm talking to people who are doing this great work for democracy, because I know I'm having an impact and my colleagues are having an impact, mm -hmm. um, you know, th those kinds of things, uh, are making it all worthwhile. And, you know, I've, I've been able to help, you know, survive COVID because of that. That's amazing. And I think the idea of people giving you money to do something that you've just created and that you're truly passionate about, what a feel good. I mean, just the fact, the fact that people give you cash, they're like, here you go. We want you to keep pushing for this. That's gotta feel amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really true. It's, it's, I, I, I actually don't, I usually don't think about it as fundraising. I think about it as an investment. Right. And when someone is willing to say, I'm willing to invest in you because the, the, the I have money, but what I want is a functioning, democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and they could give money to, you know, if they're Democrats, they could give money to Democratic political candidates or if they're Republicans, the same thing on the other side. And instead, what they're saying is, I want the will of the people to govern. Yeah. And that might be uh, that the other party wins. I mean, this is one of the things we've lost in this country, the ability to accept in a country as closely divided as we are, that the other side might win. Right. That is weird. Think about it. We live in a democracy. Of course, the other side could win. That that's that's just incumbent in everything that we do. And and I've never seen it like it is now, where there is a portion of the country that cannot conceive of the idea, cannot process the idea that their candidate might lose. We saw it to a much lesser extent in 2016. Um, I I will tell you, I was very clear at the time. Uh, Donald Trump won legitimately a majority of votes in states that comprised a majority of the Electoral College. Didn't do it by much, it was incredibly close, mm -hmm. and he lost by nearly three million popular votes. But he won under the rules that we had, and that, that election was secure. And just as much I will confidently say now, this election was not close. It was, one, it was the largest margin of any election that we've had in the 21st century where Barack Obama wasn't on the ballot. Seven million vote margin. 74 electoral, I think it was 74 electoral vote margin. Uh, the margins in each of the states, all of them above five figures. Five figures is a very large margin in a statewide race. Mm -hmm. No no election has ever been overturned in a state that had a margin of really over a thousand votes. So if you get to over 10,000 votes, 11,000 votes, or in Michigan, 150,000 votes, that's a very large margin in actuality when you look at this kind of thing. So, you know, to be able to get investment from people who realize that you know, it's important for voters to have confidence that their their votes matter, that they're going to count, that regardless of what the extremes might say, there are many people out there that want citizens in a democracy not to believe in their democracy. Uh, bef before 2020, most of them were overseas. We were getting a lot of that from Russia and China and Iran. And starting in 2020, we saw that coming, frankly, from the White House. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that uh, that should concern us quite a bit. I think, I may get the word wrong, but I think you were quoted in a CBS article, this was the most legitimate election in our country's history. I don't know if- I might have said that. I've been, I, so I, I've been saying it's the most secure election in, in American okay, history. That, that is it. objectively true. Um, we've, we have more auditable paper ballots being used in the country than ever before. Voters in Oregon know all about that. Um, it's, it, just to give you an idea, in 2016, about 75% of all voters voted on auditable paper, but that excluded voters in places like Georgia, most voters in Pennsylvania, many voters in North Carolina, all voters in South Carolina. Um, that number in 2020 was probably around 95%, including every voter in Georgia, every voter in Pennsylvania, every voter in North Carolina. So this was a huge improvement. And there are many, many other things that happened as well. Better information sharing between the states and the federal government. Uh, more audits of those paper ballots that I mentioned. Georgia actually counted their paper ballots three times in the presidential race. 
twice by machine and once entirely by hand. The, the hand count is so important. The hand audit is so important because for all of the conspiracy theories about voting machines being hacked, by the way, which both sides have made those claims at various times, mm -hmm. um, a hand audit doesn't use that software. Mm -hmm. It confirms that the software worked appropriately. And so we know that in Georgia. We know exactly what happened in Georgia. We know that the margin uh, of, of Biden's victory was right around 11,000 votes. And, the, um, uh, and we know the margins in the, in the two Senate runoffs as well which are all consistent with each other and what the political dynamics of the state of Georgia are. Yeah, I've been called on by our elections office here locally a couple of times because my signature didn't match and they actually called me down to the office to make sure I would write my signature. And I think I had changed it or something. And so I said, oh, it may be this signature. And so they verified that right in front of me. Yep. So that to me stuck out. It's always stuck out that it didn't just say, oh, we're not, we're not gonna count this vote or let's just go ahead and count it but to verify those signatures, that's a big deal. And what you're not seeing is there are many um, back-end checks and balances as well. They know the ballot that went to you has a certain serial, uh, serial number on it. it know, they know which ballot got sent to you and which ballot comes back. Hmm. They are checking to see if any mail gets returned. They are checking your voter record against your driver's license information. Oregon, for instance, is a member of Eric, so it also gets information that, you know, if, there, if, if, if there's someone with your name in another state who applies for a driver's license with your social security number, you're gonna hear about it. Yep. Because frankly, it's you, if they have your social security number and everything else. And, and, that, and by the way, that's not fraud. I mean, we know people move all the time. And when you move, you have a long list of things you're worried about. Yes. And are you thinking about changing your voter registration in April of an odd numbered year? No, you're not. That's not something you're gonna think about. <laughs> but government knows that and government can remind you about that mm -hmm. and do it before the next election. So there's all these back channel checks and balances to make sure that only the right people, the correct person that's supposed to be voting is voting. Yeah. Were you concerned at all going into uh, the last election amid this pandemic? Just how things were going to work securely and legitimately and making sure all those votes counted. Because again, as you've mentioned, a, a lot of these uh, polling places had to change just because of, of, the, of the pandemic. Was that a concern at all going into it? Yeah, it was not only a concern, it was probably the concern right. for me and, and, and my colleagues. I mean, I, back in the middle of March, um, right after my last trip, I was in Michigan for the Michigan primary. And I started seeing this is right about that was March 10th. So so if we recall back what was happening a year ago, yeah. that was right about when the pandemic really hit home for all of us. That's that week was when the NBA canceled games. Um, that was when travel started being restricted. Yep. And I remember seeing a lot of stuff that said mail voting is going to save us all. And that seem, might seem weird to people in Oregon because you've been doing it for so long. But for a lot of people, mail voting is not going to save people. You can't just ramp up mail voting in six months. You can't expect people, as you know, mail voting is somewhat of voting without a safety net. You have to understand how it works if you do something wrong, if you get it in late, if you don't fill out the envelope entirely, if you have a bad signature, can impact your ability to vote. So um, I wrote something at the time saying mail voting is going to be really important. We're going to have a lot of people voting by mail. And in fact, slightly under half of all Americans did. But over half of all Americans still chose to go and vote in person. And we knew we were going to need to have appropriate sites, which meant larger sites that could accommodate social distancing. Mm -hmm. We need to have new poll workers because about two thirds of all poll workers were at risk due to age. And so we needed to recruit new poll workers to accommodate that. And we needed to have a massive voter education campaign to inform voters about all the changes that were happening. Their polling place likely moved. They, they need to recruit new poll workers. Their, the, the opportunity to request a mail ballot, all of these things were absolutely new to so many voters. And then I want to even throw out there, there were many states that had already decided to radically change their mail voting options. Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, mail voting was available really for the first presidential election ever. So there were going to be a lot of people that were already facing a steep learning curve. Right. So we were facing that. I worked, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan uh, gave my organization money to regrant to states. We re we uh, gave out over sixty million dollars in grants to states for voter education. Those states were both red and blue. We about half of all of the uh, election officials we gave money to were Republican, and half of them were Democratic. And um, it was 
we basically gave them any the amount of money they asked for, what they needed. They needed to pay for social media ads. They needed to pay for mailings. They needed to pay for ads on TV and radio so that voters could understand without being told who to vote for. But here is how to make your voice heard. If you want to request a mail ballot, here's the site to go to or here's where you get your paper forms. If you want to go early, here's when early voting starts and here are the locations, things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was probably the lion's share of my work for uh, roughly the six months preceding November 3rd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so yeah. weird when we think about the campaigns of get out and vote. A lot of people tie that instantly to a party. It's it's automatically tied to a, a political thing. Like it, it's got to be Republican or it's got to be Democrat. And that's just not true. And we're seeing few, fewer and fewer people are identifying with a party than ever before. I mean, if you if you look, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, most people, even when they were growing up, they knew their family was Democratic or they knew their family was Republican right. and they had an identity as a Democrat or a Republican. Um, we're seeing that identity not be as prevalent anymore. Mm -hmm. People, many, many more people are registering as with no party or as independents. Um, and I, I think one of the things that also strikes me is that a lot of times there, there's a there's an assumption made about turnout and both parties make the same assumption. And that assumption is that high turnout benefits Democrats. That assumption is often false. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's false. Florida, for instance, just had the highest turnout it ever had in an election and it had the biggest Republican margin of victory that it's seen in a decade. Right. You know, Ohio, similar. Iowa, similar. So we have to stop just making assumptions about turnout. Um, both sides do it. They assume certain people are going to vote certain ways all the time, that they share kind of the identity as a member of a particular party that maybe we think we do. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. And particularly with the younger generation, younger generation is is registering and voting um, uh rigidly, you know, along along the doctrine of a particular party at much lower rates than what we've seen uh, previously. Well, and you know what they say when you assume <laughs> makes an ass. Oh, you're going back. Of you and me. Um, no, I always I always think that, yeah, assuming is a bad, it's bad. Don't assume. Don't do that. Um, I do want to wrap up a little bit. I don't want to steal all of your time today. Um, you are incredibly fascinating, David Becker. <laughs> Your brain. I'm putting that on my business card. Thank you. Tristan. Do it. Your brain is just. Um, I told my husband today, I go, I have to have a second cup of coffee because I'm interviewing um, a, a brilliant man this morning. So I have to be on my A game. Uh, I want to talk about those election officials because you hit on it earlier. They were in uh, the media, not in a positive way, meaning they got hit so hard in the 2020 election and not in a good way. And they were just doing their job to the best of their ability. A lot of them volunteers who just wanted to come in and, and they've done it in elections prior, just wanted to count ballots. It's insane. Right. It, it, so first of all, uh, the, the people who work is just poll workers, people who work at, your, uh, at the polling places, people who work in vote counting uh, centers, et cetera. Right. Those people are amazing heroes and we're never gonna know their names. They're making virtually nothing. They're, they're, they are working uh, in many cases, uh, not 16 hour days and not just one 16 hour day, not just election day. I mean, we saw votes being counted, processed round the clock uh, for many, many days after. Yeah. Um, and that's normal, by the way, that's entirely normal. Ballots come in and they, it's, it's just a lot of ballots and in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, they couldn't even start looking at those mail ballots until election day in most cases. So so they were they were both trying to run an election on election day, count those ballots of, that were being cast on election day, and also then start processing all of the ballots that had come in prior to that by mail. And that just takes some time. And then you get into the um, kind of high level election officials, the secretaries of state, the county election officials and others. Um, you don't get rich by being an election official. You don't get famous by being an election official. But, you know, there are people like sec secretaries of state, like Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, like uh, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. Yes. Benson is a Democrat. Raffensperger is a Republican um, who did their jobs with incredible integrity, despite threats uh, 
I, I was I was talking to Secretary Benson at one point, and she told me she had to get off because literally there was uh, her her house was under siege from pro protesters while it was under police uh, protection. Uh, Brad Raffensperger has had seen death threats, as have many on his staff and many workers in Georgia. There are county election officials, Republican City Commissioner Al Schmidt in Philadelphia, another real hero, who was under constant police protection for months due to the death threats he was receiving. There was a Republican election official in Michigan named Tina Barton in Rochester Hills, um, who had overseen the elections, one of the best local election officials in the country. Uh, Republican Party Chairman Ron McDaniel came up and uh, in middle of November and criticized the integrity of Michigan's elections. Tina Barton stood up to her own party chair publicly, stood up for the integrity of an election, an election in which she ran for the county clerk's job and she lost. She stood up for an election, the integrity of an election in which she lost. Adrian Fontes, Democrat uh, recorder and registrar in Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, where Phoenix is, uh, did the same. Mm -hmm. He lost his election and he stood up for the integrity of that election. That is, those, those people are true American patriots. And if we're going to be able to build back confidence, we're gonna be building it on the foundation that they built. Well, a big round of applause for all of those workers, because like you said, a lot of us will never know their name, uh, names, but they did so much during that election season, I guess, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the season was longer and more difficult than any we've ever seen. I mean, again, it's it's remarkable to think that we just achieved this this great thing, this secure, transparent. Think about all the live streaming we saw of the vote counting centers. Right. Um, think about the pre-litigation, pre-election litigation that set the rules for the for the election beforehand, like we've never seen before. More post-election litigation before courts than we've ever seen before, with nearly unanimous rulings against the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. And we achieved all of that and are confident in the elections. And we did that in the middle of a global pandemic with inadequate resources. Congress didn't provide enough money to the to the states and, and counties um, that we did all that. We should be throwing a parade for these people. Mm -hmm. But instead, some of them are still under death threats. And, you know, as I mentioned, there was a there was a pipe bomb found outside a polling place. Yeah. Uh, just this past week. That's mind blowing. And just a note, this this interview was recorded in March, so we're talking about March, months after the election, and we're still dealing with all of this. Absolutely insane to me. Um, okay, I wanna wrap up a little bit and get to the final three, but I am glad we're keeping you in a job, it sounds like, with uh, all of the election hoopla. I don't wanna call it hoopla, but I mean, we're keeping you in a job. Yeah, I guess. I'd, ra I'd rather move on to something else. If, <laughs> I, I'd rather democracy just be fixed like that. But I, I you know, d d democracy is is, a, is an on is ongoing work, even in the best of circumstances. Um, you know, our country changes, mm -hmm. our you know policies change. We're going to always have some room for this, and more importantly, we're going to have a need while people are trying to, um, uh, especially politicians, are trying to game the system to achieve some kind of political ends. We're going to have a need for the ability to to bring consensus, to find consensus between the parties and some policies that really put the voters first. And so yeah. I think I'll probably be working on this for a while. Okay, good. I'm glad. That makes me feel better. And I do want to point out, you were quoted saying this election worked better than any other election. That's what you were, were quoted as saying. And I think that's amazing given all of the challenges that you touched on just now. Yeah, that's objectively true. I mean, I'll just tell you, I'm, we're, we're going to put out a fact sheet very soon. It's going to be very short, something that's easy to digest for people with a lot of key facts, the things I mentioned about paper ballots and audits and information sharing and other things. Um, there, there is just no doubt. I've been, this is my sixth, seventh presidential election, I'm sure. I'm not sure exactly sure, um, where I've been working in this space. Uh, and it's not even close. I mean, the, the, the amount of uh, the amount, the degree to which we could verify this election, where voter rolls were more accurate than ever before. Mm -hmm. We had more early votes than ever before also, which early votes are an early warning system. If you see a problem, if someone had hacked into a voter database, for instance, or someone was committing fraud, you'd see it during the early vote process. But we had and we had 100 million early votes this time and we didn't see any of that. And we saw few lines on Election Day. I mean, it's really I, I it's a triumph of democracy. There are many, many people to credit for that, including mostly the election officials mm -hmm. who worked just tirelessly and thanklessly to get this done. I like how your face lights up when you talk about this. 
Thanks, I guess. I, I, I mean, it really is. I mean, it gets me down sometimes, too, to see the dichotomy between the success of the election and the perception among some, particularly supporters of the loser, that yeah. um, that the election didn't have integrity. But honestly, if you had told me, you know, a year ago that the pandemic was going to be where it was and that we were going to be able to achieve this kind of success where two thirds of American eligible voters, the highest percentage in American history since women were granted the right to vote over 100 years ago, two thirds of American eligible voters were going to be able to cast a ballot that would be counted, that we would have t over 20 million more voters than we have ever seen in any American election at any level in American history. I mean, we sh again, we should be throwing a parade. <laughs> we should be throwing a parade. Well, I'm cheering for you over here in Oregon. Well, thanks, and hopefully yep. I'll come visit Oregon again sometime. Once travel starts again, okay. Oregon is one of my very favorite states, and talking about great restaurants, um, Portland, a very underrated restaurant city. Also, Mr. Wine Man, uh, Southern Oregon has a fabulous wine scene. Fabulous. Are you gonna Are you gonna be telling me about the Oregon Pinot Noirs out there that that Perhaps. everyone loves to talk? Well, see, yeah, here, here's yeah. the thing. Up north, they're known for Pinot Noir. Nothing against the Willamette Valley. I love the Willamette Valley, but down here in Southern Oregon. We're known for, we can grow anything because of we have microclimates. So Pinot Noir, Malbecs, Tempranillos, Grenache. I mean, we, we do it all down here. So you gotta come visit Southern Oregon. Sounds like I might have to get on, um, on PCH and drive, uh, drive from Seattle down, down to California at some point. Okay, now you're talking. Now you're yeah. talking, that's it. Okay, plan it. All right, let's get to the final three. David Becker, the best advice you've ever been given. So I don't remember who gave me this advice, okay. and um, but but I remember I've, I've given it a lot, and it's something I've kind of adapted over time. And that is, um, no is the second best answer you can get. Um, there have been so many times when I've been working with someone and trying to get negotiations, and they just drag out and they don't go anywhere. No is clarifying. Yes is always number one. That's wonderful. But but you rarely get a yes. Sometimes no is a very, very clarifying thing and it sets you in a new direction. And no is not a that's not a loss. A no is a near win. That tells you to go in another direction to try something new. Um, and I've used that very many times. I can't tell you how many times I've heard no and tried something new and found that what I tried new was actually better than what I was trying the first time. Man, that's brilliant. That's good stuff. That's, that's really good stuff. It is, especially asking, asking for interviews. That's the first thing that popped in my head. Oftentimes I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything at all. It's just like an empty space. But then when you hear like, no, not right now, I'm like, okay, gotcha, moving on. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's like, you know, in your personal life, yeah. if you're, you know, in your, in your, oh, and there's my dogs, they're, they're agreeing with me. Um, the, uh, but, but whatever you're doing, the, um, uh, you know, I, f I find no is just, it's, it's a palate cleanser. It, Good. It, it moves you on to the next thing. I try never get to, to get depressed over a no. Okay. Good to know. I'm going to take that in. What kind of dog do you have? Got a couple dogs. They're both rescues. Uh, one's a dachshund mix and one's, uh, kind of a, a mostly beagle. Okay. That was the dachshund mix you just heard. Okay, perfect. I'm a huge dog fan, so I love it. Uh, what's your happy place? Oh, boy. I mean, there's so many to choose from because we're all kind of in this fantasy world during COVID where we're thinking about the things that we'd like to do once things uh, get better. Uh, my happy place is probably um, at a jazz club like in New York City late at night, probably sitting at the bar, um, uh, you know, God, going to bars and restaurants again will be just so nice. I know, man. But uh, but yeah, I, I I mean, it's been a long time since I heard, you know, live music, live jazz, something like that. And, and you know, certainly not in New York City. So that's that kind of appeals to mm -hmm. me right now. And I don't want to take away from the last question I'm about to ask you, but if you're sitting at the bar in a jazz club, what are you drinking? Uh, probably whiskey of some sort. Yes. Usually, you know, my, my go-to is Lagavulin, um, maybe with like a big cube in it. Uh, which, um, I mean, I will say this, I've saved a lot of money at bars over the last year because um, it's cheaper to buy buy stuff and bring it home. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm probably, that's probably what I'm drinking at a bar. Um, what kind of whiskey again? Lagavulin, it's a, it's a single malt, 16 year old single malt scotch from the Isla region of Scotland. And if you watch Parks and Recreation, Ron's, it's Ron Swanson's favorite scotch. It's, <laughs> he actually goes to the Lagavulin distillery at some point. That's awesome. All right, final meal, final drink. What does that look like? 
Uh, probably a, probably that Lagavulin. Okay. Um, and probably a really good Peking duck. That sounds that sounds amazing to me. Um, uh, I'm a big duck fan, so I think Peking duck and Lagavulin. Okay, fantastic. I'll, I always say this to people who have a really good answer. I'm like, I want to be at your final meal, but that's my. <laughs> that's always what I because well, it just we got, a little, we got a few decades till that happens. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it sounds really good. Okay, uh, if you are listening to this podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us, and you can uh, listen to this wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also watch it at ktvl.com and on YouTube. Just search for Offscript with Trish Gliss. One more time, David Becker, the executive director and founder of Center for Election, Innovation, and Research. I'm just glad you exist and just keep pushing. I, I, like I said, I'm applauding you from afar. There are many quotes from this that I'm going to take and put into my uh, onto my business cards okay. in the future. So thank you for thank you for boosting my ego and my um, my, my feelings of self worth. Okay, and when I see you on CBS News, I'll, I'll be waving at you. Just All know right. that. Thanks, Trish. Okay, thank you, I David, so much. Thanks.